crafty because she listens to Stick to Wrestling, the beastiest boy out there. Give us 60 minutes, and perhaps, indeed, we will give you a Raw Bone podcast. Hello again. My name is John McAdam, and this is Stick to Wrestling. Sure, there are other podcasts, but are they wicked good? Let's ask this young lady. No. We have our answer definitively. Social media time. Follow the show on Facebook. We have a really cool Facebook group. A lot of cool guys, that, cool and knowledgeable guys that like to talk wrestling. Um, I'm actually going to ask a favor of everyone in that group. If I am redundant, if I've said something a million times, let me know about it. I mean, be nice because I'm a very sensitive soul, but you, know, you can talk about that. I, if I have told a story too many times or something like that. I don't want to be the Ole Anderson of podcasting. And with that, I want to bring on a very popular guest. Everyone loves him when he's on the show. He is someone I have met in person. He's been on Stick to Wrestling two or three times already. Mr. Randy Smith. Randy, thank you for coming back. Thank you for having me. Hey, no problem. Today I thought of this, and someone in our Facebook group asked the question, you know, do you think there could ever be territories again? And... That was what show number four was about two years ago, if you want to go back and listen to that. But Randy and I, assuming Randy was there and he remembers this, has a funny, I think it's a funny territory story. In 1980, Randy and I were in Memphis, and we had a, a, a like a breakfast with Luthez. Remember that? I do remember that. <laughs> I'm not going to forget meeting Luthez, but anyway, I was part of, like, I mean, it was it was a convention of smart fans, but me being me when I was in my early 20s, I thought I was like the smartest, coolest fan. And my clique also thought that that of themselves. And Lou is up on the stage doing a speech and someone asked him, hey, do you, you know, do you ever think territories are coming back? And Lou's like, oh, yeah, territories definitely coming back. It, it can't stay this way forever. Territories coming back. And me and my friends in this, at this table are, are like, yeah, the territories are dead. Cable TV has taken over. Lou is either working the room or he just doesn't know better. And it was like a magic trick. Lou comes over and like on the sly tells us, hey, guys, sorry about that territory stuff. I got to tell the people what they want to hear. Were you there, Andy? I do. I recall the whole territory conversation with Lou. That was, yeah, that was Memphis 88. And. <laughs> Just thinking about that, I mean, do you realize how privileged we were to have been in a room with Luthez? I mean, Lance Russell, too, Eddie Gilbert. I mean, everybody who was there at the time, not to, you know, branch off to the whole Memphis thing again, but I, I still look at that as a huge privilege. There aren't many people who can say they actually had dinner or breakfast, anything with Luthez, and we can. And Lou, you know, Lou was not this like tight ass old codger. He was a cool guy. And he, yep. he was, I believe he was in his mid to late sixties, but he still had all of his facilities. Oh yeah, definitely. He was great. But anyway, Randy, I want to have you on. I mean, there's a million things you could talk about wrestling wise, but what I'd like to focus on today, when you were a kid, you attended most of the tapings of WWF All-Star Wrestling. I did. Uh, Hamburg Fieldhouse, I went to them from, I didn't go to every one. They had them every three weeks. They had them on a Wednesday night, do 
all-star tapings were at the Hamburg Fieldhouse. I went there with my dad. He had gone years prior to taking me. I didn't get into it until I was about a, a nine or 10-year-old kid in 1980. He had been going since the, the mid-70s. He'd been going there. And um, as far as me going there, I only got into it around 1980. And I was still very, very, I, I was a green fan. I didn't really understand everything. and But I, I picked up on it as time went by. And it was huge from 1980 to 1984. I attended the majority of them every three weeks. I didn't attend every one, but the majority of them I went to. And I saw a few big angles that happened there. But unfortunately, most of the, the angles, title changes on TV, happened on championship wrestling in Allentown the night before Hamburg. We weren't really the B show. We were more like the A minus show. <laughs> I used to get you know, championship wrestling, watched it every week and all-star wrestling was kind of a mixed bag. I, I remember we, when I lived in North Attleboro, Mass, they had it out of Worcester, Mass. And, you know, that, that's a long way, and we're looking at non-cable TV, and sometimes I would just sit there and listen to the audio because I wanted to watch it that bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you got to see it live, and I'm doing this crazy stuff. But when did you start going in 1980? The beginning of 1980. It was, it was uh, still wintertime. I'm going to say January or February of 1980 is when I started. I watched it a couple months prior with my dad on TV, and you know, I knew he went to him and everything, but I never had any interest. I was I was about nine or ten at the time, and you know, I'm like, I'd like to go with you. You know, I'd like to, and he's like, okay. And from that point on, we we went to all of them together. Beginning in 1980, I want to say January, February. We needed to trade dads. Um, I lived. <laughs> It, right before this era, I lived in North Alabama where they had Jack Witchie Sports Arena and they had wrestling every single Friday night, and I was not allowed to go at all. It wasn't even a consideration, so I wound up only going like four times and I could sneak away. Uh, uh, that was a fortunate thing. I, I, my dad is the one who actually got me into every the, the whole professional wrestling thing. I don't know if I ever would have got into it if it weren't for him because he's the one who had it on TV all the time. He's one that went to the matches all the time and he started taking me and uh, that's what got me into it. And little did I know at the time that little, you know, the, the, the tapings they did, the Hamburg field house isn't a very big building. It, it might've held comfortably. I would say maximum you'd have about maybe seven, 700 people in there. It usually was not that full though. There were more, more along the line of maybe four or 500 people each time. They, they did a good job making it look full on TV. I'll give them that. Well, they had, uh, it, it was only two sides that the fans sat on. The side that can, uh, I wish I could have a visual of this for you guys, but the concession stand was off to the left and they had no seating there with the exception of the ringside chairs, which were about 10 rows. Now, they had bleacher. The bleachers are where the general admission is where most of the people sat unless you paid for the front row tickets in one of the 10 rows that were around the ring. Man, I mean, you must have some great memories. What is your favorite memory, like number one from this era? Iron Mike Sharp. Um, okay. I'll tell you what, if you do, um, it, it, 
again, I wish you had a visual. Actually, you can. If you if you go to like Google Maps or Google Earth, you go to the Hamburg Field House. There's a, a cemetery, a church and a cemetery, a pretty big cemetery right next to the field house. And Iron Mike Sharp, when he came around in, in uh, 1983, he would run through the cemetery, making all the grunting noises that you heard on TV that he made. He'd be running through the cemetery, and there were actually stairs that concrete steps that went up to the cemetery. He would run up and down them. I, I kid you not, you know, 30, 40 times he'd be running up and down the steps of the cemetery. And it didn't matter if it was summertime. It didn't matter if it was dark out. Before the show, he would be out there, you know, in 10 degree weather, running in the dark through the cemetery, making these grunting noises. And, and when you talk about my memories out of everything, the four years that I went, that stands out more than anything. I, I've seen a lot there, but I never saw anything like that man. I don't know what went through his I, I've heard a lot of stories about Mike Sharp and he was definitely one of a kind. And I can attest to that. I, I saw it happen many times. I met Iron Mike once and this was before I, I knew he had like a little bit of a reputation as being a, a a colorful character, shall we say. I mean I walked up to him at the Boston Garden. I was like, yeah I'm, I'm my Iron Mike, can I get my picture taken with you? And he's like, sure. And he's like, what'd you think of my match tonight? And he's like, talk to me like I'm a smart fan, which I was a little bit by then. And it was just weird. He wasn't like, it was like he knew something that, oh, this guy reads the newsletters or whatever. But yeah, what did you think of Iron Mike Sharp's push like in 83 when he came in with Lula Albano? Oh, when he first came in, I, I, I remembered him. I didn't, I liked the way when he first came in, he, I liked the way he was very, very verbal. He he was in the ring, you know, he would yell the guys that pop out in my mind who, you know, at, at Hamburg, it, it, like I said, it wasn't a big building, but when you yelled in there, you could hear it. Oh yeah. Iron Mike Sharp. He was very verbal in the ring. He would yell, he would grunt. Stan Hansen was another one. He would do that, you know. Yep. Killer Khan. Killer Khan would give the shriek, like a yell. If if you watch his matches, you can hear him yell before before he did every karate chop. Before Killer Khan was another one. But yeah, what back to the original question though. Mike Sharp, when he came in in '83, I don't think they 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 played him the way. They should have, but then again, this was an earlier time. I mean, he, I think he should have got a little bit more push than he did, but they, they kind of gave him that push for maybe a few months and then they kind of dropped him a little lower in the card, having a 10 minute draw. And then eventually, you know, the whole forearm thing with him became a joke and it, 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 it didn't pan out for him the way I would have liked to have seen it, but. To this day, uh, four years that I went there, Iron Mike Sharp was probably one of my personal favorite performers that I watched there. I see no reason why they didn't give him a title match at Madison Square Garden. He got one in Philly and he got one in Boston. Yes, he did get one in Philly. I do. I remember he got one against Bob Backlund in Philly. You know, I, I don't think anything anything more came past that. He never got any, you know, intercontinental title matches or anything like that. But 
Yeah, again, people look back on Iron Mike Sharp, and unfortunately, they, they see a jobber. When I look back on Iron Mike Sharp, I saw a true performer who totally gave everything he had in every way. I mean, he would, when people would yell wimp, he would overplay that times 100. He would go out there, he would throw freaking chairs around the ring. He would, you know, practically smash his head. He overplayed everything. And that was, that was the charm of that guy. Unless you, you saw it live. I, again, I, I saw it live so often that, that he became the highlight of pretty much the whole night. I, I wanted to see Iron Mike Sharp. And it may be hard to believe hearing that, but looking back on it, I can't tell you why, but he had the X factor to me. When you saw I, him live, he had an X factor that hardly anybody else had. Yeah, I bought him as a top guy, not a Morocco Valentine top guy, but like a, a Playboy Buddy Rose type. type. Right. And another thing, too, a lot of people don't realize, you look at him, he, he was, I mean, you know, I used to go to the, you know, the entrance way when they came in and out and everything like that. I mean, Iron Mike Sharp was a big dude. He was a huge, he had a barrel chest on him that, my God, I mean, he, I, I can't imagine, I can he had to have been able to bench, I, I would say, well over three, probably 400. He, he just had a huge chest on him. And he did cardio, like I told you, at the cemetery and everything. He would run up and down the steps. He would run through the cemetery. He would do all that. Anything you heard about him is probably true. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to throw in before our next subject. I mean, you talked about Killer Khan and, like, the screaming he did. Mm-hmm. Bill Watts had a beautiful explanation for that. He's like, oh, yeah, when they, when they train for karate where he's from, they tell you to scream so that way it tightens up your abdominal muscles. And this, this is why Bill Watts is so, one reason why Bill Watts is so great. Let's talk about Larry Zabisco. Now, he had major, major heat at the television tapings, and you were there. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely, yeah. In the beginning of, right when I started going in 1980, Larry was still, uh, he was a babyface set, and he, unfortunately, the angle with him and Bruno didn't air in Hamburg. They taped that in Allentown. Mm-hmm. But uh, as far as after the angle aired, Larry Zbisco became the most hated man I had experienced up until that point in, in professional wrestling. He, there were people, I mean, people would, I, I never, I, I don't think, uh, I, I may be wrong, but I don't think I ever saw people throw things at a wrestler prior to Larry Zabisco. I think Zabisco might have been the first guy I ever saw the fans hate that much that they were throwing stuff at him, you know, be it paper cut, you know, crumpled up paper cups. I, I don't think it got, you know, to the point of like bottles or anything like that, but I know any kind of trash you had, you threw at Larry if he came to the ring. <laughs> now, here's something that you saw, and this is a big deal. You saw the Roddy Piper angle where he attacked Jimmy Snooker with the coconut. You got to see that live. That was the biggest thing that ever happened at the Hamburg Fieldhouse. Roddy Piper, Jimmy Snooker, coconut angle. And I can tell you a little bit about that. That actually, by... By early 1984, a lot of things had changed at the TV tapings in Hamburg. And 
I'll get into that later. But that angle with uh, Piper breaking the coconut on Snooker's head, that happened at the Hamburg Fieldhouse. That was actually, that happened the night of March, either the 28th or the 29th. I would have to look at a 1984 calendar. Whatever night, Wednesday, it, it was either the 28th or the 29th on a Wednesday night. Now, after they, they did that angle, that I, I was right there. I was about 25 feet away behind the guardrail watching oh, wow. Piper's pit. My dad didn't see it. He, he never wandered with me. He always stayed in his chair. But I got to see the whole thing happen. I got to see Jay Strongbow and Tony Gurria pushing him out the door, which was on the heel side of the locker room, if you watch it. Now, they shot that the night of late March, either the 28th or the 29th. They didn't air that until around Memorial Day, about two months later. And I think I had mentioned to you, I actually thought that they dropped the angle and they weren't going to show it on TV because so much time had went by. And to this day, I'm not sure why they kept that in the can for two months before they aired it. But that was actually shot at the end of March and it, it didn't air until the end of May of 1984. No, I do remember that. I remember, you know, that angle took place in the summer. Maybe they wanted to, I'm, I'm just guessing here, maybe they just wanted to finish off the uh, Roddy Piper versus Rocky Johnson feud. That could be, because that was uh, Piper's pit too. Uh, I remember when Rocky uh, slapped Roddy Piper on Piper's pit. Uh, that that was another one too that happened. Uh, I think he and Atlas were on first, and then after that one, Johnson came on alone, and that's when Rocky Johnson slapped Piper. And I, I remember that one too. I mean, talk about me taking wrestling a little bit too seriously. I mean, I remember the Piper's Pit where Piper attacked Frank Williams, as we we all remember it. That was Hamburg was, too. I saw yeah, that. That was oh, Hamburg wow. too. And that Before was the last Frank, we saw Frank Williams. Yeah, you're probably right, because that, that was going into 1984. I think Frank uh, wasn't around the business much longer after 84. It At almost, least I never saw him. It almost felt like a going away present that they were giving him. It might have been. It I mean, been. And that's the thing. These guys, you know, Frank Williams, I started watching wrestling I mean, really started watching it like April, May, 1976. Like it was appointment TV for me right around that time. And Frank Williams had been on since then. I mean, this guy, you know, I see him on TV twice a week, every week, usually twice a week. And then I saw him on the spot shows and just like, bang, one day he's gone. Yeah, I, I think he were, he was kind of uh, aging at that point, too. And, you know, around 1984, because. I know he he was there from the beginning when I went in 1980, and I know watching older shows, I know he was around in the mid to late 70s, too. So, Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'll have to look it up and see, you know, when he started with them, but he was with them in 1976. So tell me about seeing Piper and Williams. That must have been really cool. That was, yeah, it was one of those Piper, week after week, Piper became more and more Roddy Piper. The best way I can put it, he he developed more and more of his character every three weeks that you saw him there. It, it'd be easier to go back to the beginning of 1984. The first taping in January of 1984, I, I mentioned to you things had changed. 
And the last taping I went to in December of 83, everything was, you know, the way it had been for the past three years that I had been going. The first week in 1984 when I went, first of all, ticket prices almost doubled. Uh, my dad, I didn't pay for him. You know, my dad did. But he goes, you know, I, I remember him coming. It did, you know, Christ, the ticket prices went up to, I forget what it was at the time. They might have went up to like $15 for ringside, which in 1984 was a big deal. Because yeah. they had been about $8 prior to that. And they almost doubled. And uh, when I came in there in 1984, the first taping, they had a big huge wwf with the logo a banner hanging from the ceiling and they had a victory magazine banner hanging from the ceiling too and it was just a different look and i think the lighting was a little bit different too but on that set of tv tapings in the first january of 1984 there was a guy who came in i never saw before named dr d david schultz guy who came in named Roddy Piper and a guy on commentary named Gene Okerlund who had never been there before. And that was also, even though it wasn't at Hamburg, it, it happened the Tuesday night before in Allentown. That was when Hulk Hogan returned to assist Bob Backlund against uh, Samu. I think it was. It was, it was Samu or Samu or whatever they were calling yeah. it at the time. I mean, yeah, I mean, that must've been, I mean, it was wild for me watching the transformation at home. And I didn't pick up right away that, hey, the, the wrestling that you grew up on, is we're on our way to taking it out. Yep. That's and, exactly what it was. Looking back on it, I didn't realize that either. But I think that was the beginning of Vince Jr. Doing, yeah, taking over. Yeah, Vince Jr. officially took over, uh, I want to say, like, June or July 1982. But now... As soon as it became like late 83, actually, he started making his moves in 1983. I mean, I think the first thing he did that was kind of an act of war, if you may, was when he took the Samoans away from Georgia without uh, them giving any notice. But anyway, one thing I want to mention, too, I don't know how many of you guys listening know this. Piper's Pit was a total accident. It started off as Victory Corner. Do you remember this segment, how bad it was? Victory Corner, I actually have I have one on videotape from that the first uh the first show in January I was just talking about. They had Victory Corner, and the guy's name was Craig DeGeorge, I believe, and he was interviewing the Iron Sheik and Fred Blassie. And yeah, it was it was bad. It was really bad. I mean, you know, the guy would talk about the Victory magazine and why we're supposed to buy it for like a couple mm-hmm. of minutes. And then he would, like, ask the wrestler a question, and the wrestler would give him, like, a one or two answer question, and that would be it. Then he'd start plugging the magazine again. That was the whole segment. Now that you brought that up, that interesting you brought that up, I mentioned they put up that big Victory Magazine banner, the first show in 1984. They also, they didn't have the 50-cent programs that they used to have anymore. It was a $3 Victory Magazine now. and. <laughs> That was a big change, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, when they got rid of the Kiter magazines doing yep. their programs and their magazines, and now they're doing them all in-house, I mean, that, that's just a hint and a half that Vince McMahon, you know, he's got big plans for this. Right. So anyway, th- here's another thing I wanted to ask you about. Did you 
ever see, and you must have like seen dozens of stuff, like things that you were not supposed to see? Yeah, a few things. One that really pops out in my head. It was one of the first shows when I first started going with him sometime in 1980. I can't tell you exactly when. There was a match going on in the ring. I don't re- It was some kind of prelim match. It might have been Dominic Danucci against uh, Bobby Duncan or something like that. But anyway, all of a sudden, the people, people in the arena just started clearing out and going out the door. And, uh, you know, I wasn't sure what was going on, but uh, like everybody cleared out and it got actually dominant. Yeah, it was Dominic Danucci. And I want to say it was Bobby Duncan. They actually stopped the match and just kind of were leaning against the ropes, looking at all the people going out the door. And this went on for about five minutes. And eventually people started coming back in and everything like that. And. I, I, I was only a nine or 10 year old kid. I wasn't allowed at that point to, you know, go anywhere without my dad. And my dad and I just, you know, sat there and we didn't know what was going on. But one of the people sitting next to us, he, he had gone and then he came back and my dad asked him, he's like, what's going on out there? And he said, something happened with Tor Kamada and a fan. And I'm not sure to this day. I don't know what happened, but from what I heard, the police were involved and something happened with Tor Kamada and a fan. And interesting enough, after that, I never saw Tor Kamada again. I don't know what happened. I, I can't find anything online. I've, I've even looked online. I tried to go down a rabbit hole. I don't know what happened that night, but something happened with Tor Kamada and a fan that practically cleared out the whole building to the point where everybody was outside watching it. It was going on outside. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. I mean, Tor Kamada had the reputation of being a little bit of a wild man, so I can only imagine if if some fan came at him or what. But yeah, so that was the end of Kamada. Yeah, yeah. I, I never saw him after that. I... I don't remember much about, he's one of the guys, I saw him when I first started watching it, and then he kind of disappeared, and I never saw him again, and, and something big happened that night, and I, I don't know what, but I can tell you something happened. That's all I can tell you about that. All right, now let me ask you this. They did three sets of tapings every three weeks, so three television shows. Did yep. you watch the television shows? Yeah. Yeah, I watched them every Saturday. It, what they did, it was, uh, you know, it, it went to the, the, the do an hour show, and then it'd have a 15, 20-minute intermission between each show. And after the shows were done, they had a dark match. So it went from 7 o'clock until we would get out of there usually between 11.30 and midnight. Oh, wow! Mm-hmm. Every three weeks, yeah. yeah. I was not ready for that one because they seemed to keep things moving but it, it with all that production it, it lasted like five out four and a half hours for it about four yeah yeah because till you count in the intermissions there and yeah and the, the dark match now a lot of times that that was we got boned a lot with the dark matches i mean so get a, oh my god you'd get promised like uh you know the the dark match was gonna be andre the i remember one of them this was probably like 1982 andre the giant and blackjack mulligan 
And this was after they ran the angle on TV where Mulligan attacked Andre. Yep. And, oh, my God, I was looking forward to this. I'm like, oh, man, I, you know, I want to see that. And uh, it went about three minutes. The whole thing was Mulligan came to the ring. Andre came to the ring. Mulligan, you know, ran out of the ring, ran back into the ring, ran out of the ring, ran back in. Andre headbutted him. Mulligan ran back to the dressing room and got counted out. What the hell? I, I, I swear that's exactly how it happened. And, you know, even, you know, that, that sucked. I mean, it, there were, now don't get me wrong. There were good ones. There, there was one, the, the greatest dark match I ever saw in Hamburg in, uh, I can tell you when it was October, 1983, Pat Patterson and Ivan Koloff had a dark match. And I, to this day, with the exception of the 1986 great American bash, where Wahoo McDaniel got the razor blade stuck in his head. I never saw that much blood in my life. And it was a dark match. Uh, Ivan Koloff, I have no idea how he lost that much blood and was okay. I mean, it, it was just blood all over. You, you can't even imagine. I never saw that much blood before. And he, so, he did it for 500 people. That's crazy. Yeah, if that. And it was a dark match, too. Not even, not even on TV. Right. And, you know, they were him and Patterson were running shows, you know, they had a match in Philly and I believe they had one at the Garden and they might have had one at Boston. But this was a dark match They were, you know, and I don't know. I mean, Koloff, Koloff's forehead was so probably tender. I mean, he he didn't even have to blade half the time. Probably he could yeah. just he, he could just bust open the hard way. He, he had that much scar tissue there but uh, again that that was that was a great dark match and a bloody one too i believe it i mean ivan koloff was a great worker and he might have been in his peak like late 70s early 80s because he took off so much bulk i mean i've said this before one of the best matches i've ever seen live was bob backland against ivan koloff in the boston garden this was like summer of 1983 and they went 40 minutes, I want to say. And when they were done, the Boston Garden crowd actually stopped and gave the match itself a standing ovation. It was nuts. Hmm. Yeah, that was a great match. And Ivan Koloff was a good guy, too. He was one of the few, uh, like the heels were on one side of the building, the baby fizzes were on the other. Ivan Koloff was actually one of the heels that he would come out and People would approach him and ask him for an autograph, maybe get a picture. There were a few heels that did that. Ivan Koloff was one of them. And he was, you know, as a 10-year-old kid going up and asking him for an autograph. And that was, you know, you're a little bit intimidated. He couldn't have been a nicer dude, though. I mean, he, he was a good guy, Ivan Koloff. I, I've never met Ivan Koloff, but I have heard that more than once. That he was a really good guy. Who were the guys that you, you knew? Just don't bother. Stay away from them. Well, I, I got a story about that. I I mentioned about the, you know, the heel side of the locker room there. And, you know, occasionally you'd go there and you, you'd catch, uh, you know, Sergeant Slaughter. And there'd be ones there, the hangman. They'd give you their autograph. Morocco. Morocco was another one. Morocco was actually a really good dude. He would. You know, he would smile at you, give you an autograph and everything like that. 
there was one time uh, when he first came on the scene, I went up to Samu or Samuel, whatever they called him. Uh, I asked him for an autograph and I was about 11, 11 years old at the time. And he looked at me and he said, get out of my face before I kick your effing head off. <laughs> he said this. He said this to an 11 year old kid. I, I look back on that now and kind of laugh, but I'm like, wow, that, that was kind of, br- I mean, <laughs> Dude. He, he was a dick to this day. Samu, if, if you're out there, F you, you're, a dick. <laughs> uh, you, you did that to an 11 year old kid. He scared the hell out of me. I mean, he, he, he literally, <laughs> and he was out there, he was out there with often Sika too. And they just kind of, yeah, they didn't say anything. They just kind of snickered or whatever, and I got the hell out of there. I mean, I, I, went, know, I went up. Yeah. Th- this isn't an excuse. I think he was like 18, 19 years old at the time. And really young, yeah. I mean, obviously, he just wanted to impress his uncles. My God. Yeah. That, that was a little bit over the top. Yeah, he, he was one of them. Stan Hansen was another one, too. He was kind of out and about once in a while but you just didn't approach him. king kong mosca was another one it, basically the, the dudes who came off as being scary to a kid on tv were the ones i didn't approach that doesn't surprise me it really doesn't now yeah. how about how about on the baby face end you got any stories from then oh yeah tony atlas was he was the one who was out there interacting with fans more than anybody Tony Atlas was always out there, always signing autographs, talking to people. Tony Gurria was another one, too. That was the first time I met a really young kid named Eddie Gilbert back in 1983. Oh, wow. And uh, Putsky, yeah, uh, pretty much all of them. Buddy Rogers, now that I'm thinking about it, Buddy Rogers, extremely polite guy. He would... You know, not only like I remember asking him for an autograph and he actually was one of the few. He asked me for my name and he'd write to Randy, you know, Buddy Rogers, little things like that. Buddy Rogers, extremely polite guy. You got wow. You got to be Buddy freaking Rogers and Luthez. Yeah, Buddy. I, I met Buddy a few times. He he had Rogers Corner. If you remember. Yeah, you remember that show. Oh, uh, Rogers Corner. He did a few of them in Hamburg, but the majority of them he must have done in Allentown, like the one where Snooker got attacked by Ray Stevens and Albano. That was Allentown. That didn't happen in Hamburg. Yeah. Now, the thing I remember most about All-Star Wrestling, besides me struggling to get it because, you know, it was from on a station far away, after the second match, they would do an interview outside the ring. Mm-hmm. Am I remembering this correctly? Yeah, it probably was the second match. I mean, I know they did. You're right. They they did an interview outside the ring all the time. Yeah. Yeah, and it was like, you know, it wasn't like All-Star Wrestling is coming to Boston on this date. It was like a real, like, five or six-minute interview. Yeah, it was basically where they would, you know, give whoever was out there an opportunity to push themselves or push whatever feud they had. That's where, you know, Mosca smashed the water pitcher over Pat Patterson's head. Uh, you got to during, see that. I didn't know. That happened in Allentown. But oh, okay. I'm saying out when they did interviews like that, occasionally, you know, there'd be, there'd be an angle that came out of it. 
the same thing with like the Cobra Clutch Challenge. That happened during, you know, with uh, Patterson and Slaughter during one of the interviews. Jim Duggan, he, I remember Jim Duggan being one of the guys that did the Cobra Clutch Challenge. That happened in Hamburg. Yeah, there, there, there's so much that I try to filter through and remember over that four-year period. Now, do you have any Lou Albano stories? Because I remember Albano yeah. <laughs> on All-Star Wrestling, and it, it seemed like he was at his craziest on that show for whatever reason. Well, the, the main reason was vodka. <laughs> um, I'm really sure about that. I don't know if you remember, the, there was a match, just a regular squash match, and I can't even tell you who they were wrestling, but the Moondogs were wrestling, and, and Albano, Albano's shirt caught on fire from his cigar. And he had to take his shirt off and, and stomp on it. His shirt actually caught fire. Yeah, that happened at Hamburg. I got, I got to see that. Yeah, Al, Albano, too, he, he would, when we had ringside he would always play the people at ringside you know he would he would interact with them lou albano was a great entertainer yeah a great he would know how to play the people and get the people he he did his job well he would get the people to hate him and nobody did that better than lou albano i mean albano definitely i was saying since the observer hall of fame started i thought albano was a huge omission. I'm glad he finally got in. And usually when my shirt catches fire, people try to put it out with an axe. But anyway, Fred Blassie. Uh, did you have any Fred Blassie stories? Not really. He kept to himself. He managed all the foreign guys. He came to the ring. He didn't interact with the people at ringside like Lou Albano did. He would just be at ringside. And he always looked good. <laughs> he always had the fancy outfits and everything. Same thing with the Grand Wizard, too. And I, I do have a, a, a Grand Wizard story, actually. Um, the night I started getting into the whole graffiti, holding a sign up at ringside, you know, to see if I could get on TV with it or not. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I can't remember exactly what I put there. Something about, you know, again, I was about a 12-year-old kid at the time now. Something like uh, Grand Wizard looks like Tinkerbell or something. And I made it I made it on this big, you know, piece of cardboard and yeah, I took it with and everything. And the Grand Wizard, first time I had been at the tapings and the Grand Wizard wasn't there that night. God damn, you know, I make this sign, the Grand Wizard ain't there. Saturday on TV, they put up the in the beginning that the grand wizard passed away. Oh and, no. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he had actually, uh, you know, he, he had passed away earlier that week and they didn't announce it. That was what, you know, I mean, they, they announced David Von Eric for God, you know, when he died in 84, <laughs> they announced that to everybody, but they didn't announce that the grand wizard had passed away. And you know, to find out about it, that coming, you know, the, the Saturday after that on TV, it was like, wow, that kind of sucks that, you know, I made I made that sign making fun of the guy and he was dead. Yeah, and Your sign killed him, man. It, it might have. Yeah, that was actually <laughs> that, that, that was actually that took me back a little bit. But <laughs> oh, man, you know, it was I really wonder. And I'd like to get your input on this. 
like had the Grand Wizard lived, like what his role in the WWF would have been moving forward. I mean, let's say he lived until 1990. What do you think would have happened to him? Well, now here's the thing. Right after the Wizard passed away, Paul Orndorff was supposed to be managed by the Wizard. But the Mm -hmm. Grand Wizard died before Orndorff came in. So they put Orndorff with Piper. I'm not sure. I I don't think... I I think he would have just kind of... He would have maybe kind of phased himself out kind of the way Fred Blassie did. And, you know, as time went on, I I think that probably is what would have happened to him too. But it would have been interesting to see where he went with Paul Orndorff as opposed to where Paul Orndorff went with Piper. Yeah, Orndorff uh, was going to be managed by the Grand Wizard. He arrived, I want to say, September or October of 83. Yeah, I, I believe it was October because I know it happened right around the time. The first time I ever saw him was right around the time the Grand Wizard uh, died. Okay. So, yeah, but I, I just wonder, like, what 1984 would have been like. I, I think about that, too. I don't think it would have been. I mean, the Wizard, he never did much other than he didn't, you know, take bumps the way Albano did or. Anything like that. I, I don't know. I think as time went on with the direction that Vince McMahon was taking the WWF in in 1984, I don't think the Grand Wizard would have had much of a place there, unfortunately. No, I and you know what? I kind of think the same thing. I think they would have kept him around. They would have given him someone to manage. But I think it would have been similar to what happened with Fred Blassie. Yeah. I think that someone you're talking about would have been Paul Orndorff because that was going to be the thing. The Grand Wizard and Paul Orndorff were, that was going to be it. Oh yeah. The Grand Wizard was definitely scheduled to manage Paul Orndorff. And, and for once we finally have a a big time heel without a manager, which is a little bit weird. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I kind of think the same thing you do that, that wizard would have been phased out. I, I remember when Fred Blassie right before, they brought in Slick, and Slick and Blassie were co-managing guys. I knew. I'm like, they're getting rid of Fred Blassie because he looks yeah. so old on TV now. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. I'll tell you what. Tell me the best story you haven't told me about Hamburg yet. Uh, best story. Well, I told you about Torquemada. I told, uh, just little things that happened here and there, like uh, Gary Capetta was a huge, huge part of the Hamburg Fieldhouse. There was an ongoing rib, and I'm not really sure why, but if you remember, every time Gary would announce, you know, I'm your ring announcer, Gary Michael Capetta, everybody would boo him. I I did did notice that. Booed him out of the arena, and I don't know why, but it was an ongoing thing in Hamburg. Every show when he'd announce himself, he would get booed out of there, and he kind of loved it, too. He played off that. I remember that looking at the uh, all-star wrestling on the WWE network that he was getting booed every time. Getting booed every time, every (laughs) time. And uh, one thing I will mention about Hamburg too, in all the years that they ran the tapings there, there was only one title change that ever happened there. Let me, did you get to see it? Yes, I did. It was at the very last or second to last. I want, (laughs) I want to say the very last, but don't quote me on that. TV uh, taping they ever taped there. Oh, wow. Let me think. Uh, Windham and Rotundo regaining the belts. 
No, that was close. Close. Adrian Adonis and Dick Murdoch beat Tony Atlas and Rocky Johnson in April of 84. Okay. That I remember being really surprised because the Atlas and Johnson team, you know, it seemed like for the first time you had two legitimate superstar baby faces teaming up. There was no Tony Gurria on this team. There was no Dominic DiNucci on this team. Like those Mm -hmm. two guys were legit. And then the title reign didn't last long, but then we hear that it's at least due to Tony and Rocky just not getting along. I heard that too. And and interesting you bring that up. Rocky did not, I had mentioned earlier about Tony Atlas. Tony Atlas was very, very in touch with the fans. He liked to interact with them. And Rocky Johnson was more, he always stayed in the back. Uh, I, I never got a Rocky Johnson autograph. I never, I don't think I ever met him. Even though he and Atlas were the champions and everything, I never saw them together, with the exception of when they were in the ring. They were never hanging out together the way, uh, uh, who the hell were they? Oh, the Invaders. Uh, you know, when the Invaders were there, they always hung out. And same thing with Fuji and Saito, and later Fuji and Chung Lee, and Moondogs. You, you always saw them together. You never saw Tony and Rocky together. You know, Tony was the nice guy, and Rocky just seemed like the mean old man that, you know, didn't want to be bothered with anybody. <laughs> that is kind of Rocky's reputation mm-hmm. that he's, he takes himself seriously as an athlete, but I, he's just not a big hangaround guy. I don't think he enjoyed what he did that much, to be honest with you. I mean, when you'd watch him in the ring, it just, you know, Rocky was over and everybody liked Rocky, but it just didn't, it didn't seem like he was, he had his heart into it. I don't, I don't know how to explain it. But I, I, that's how it looked to me. I mean, I remember, you know, like 86 there, you know, there's a wrestling war going on. You have Mid-South Wrestling or the UWF. You've got the NWA. You've got the WWF. You'd think these guys would be scrambling for talent. And I know he'd been in the WWF for a while, so there's a reason why he's gone. But I never understood why he didn't go to watch or Crockett. I thought they could have used him. They could have easily used him. I don't know why, you know, I, I believe in around 87, didn't he end up in Memphis for a while? In early 87, he was in Memphis. Yeah. And he, he just, you know, Memphis was, you know, it wasn't like a hotbed or anything. I mean, it, it was great for the people in Memphis, but it wasn't the kind of national exposure that he could have got in, in Crockett. I think Rocky Johnson would have worked out great in Crockett personally. Same thing in Mid-South. I mean, I for mm-hmm. whatever reason, and let's be honest, Memphis by early 1987 was not exactly a money territory. No, not at all. So and I know he was living in Florida. I think he was still living in or around Miami, so that's not exactly an easy trip. I guess he had to live in Tennessee if he was going around the circuit, but uh, whatever. So, mm-hmm. Randy, let me ask you this. What was it like when Snuka showed up in 82? Oh, in 82, the beginning of 1982, I want to say uh, around March, three guys showed up that I had read about in magazines, but I never saw them live before. It was Jimmy Snuka, and then shortly after him, Blackjack Mulligan and Bob Orton Jr. showed up. And the way I remember it, I kind of packaged the three of them together, even though nobody else probably would. That's how I remember them. You know, they all came in together at the same time. Nobody ever got cheered the way Snooka did as a heel prior to that, that I remember. 
And it, it was amazing what he could do. I mean, what he could do now, you look back at it, it ain't no big deal. But back in 1982, you didn't see that anywhere. Yeah, he brought something to the WWF in 1982 that nobody else had up to that point. No, and he looked great when he first arrived. He had that, like, really long, crazy hair. He had the beard. He was still wearing boots. I mean, he looked like a dangerous dude. He was, he was a cat. I mean, he was he sculpted that guy out of granite. You know, aside from Hulk Hogan, like, a, you know, years prior to that, I'm talking the 1980 Hulk Hogan, when he was heel managed by Blassie, I had never been up close to anyone that physically impressive before. I mean, you guys, as a little kid, a young kid, I was in awe when I looked at Hulk Hogan. And even though I was a couple years older, and Snuka didn't have a lot of height. Snuka might have been about 5'10", if that. But the way he was built, when he walked by you, you didn't see anything like that. Two quick Jimmy Snuka sides. I mean, I'm with you. I mean, when we would go to the matches at the Boston Garden, I mean, Jimmy was the one heel since I started going who actually got cheers. I mean, I had only been going by mid-1982. I had been going for like 14, 15 months only. But I remember the heels were strictly booed and the baby faces got baby face pops. It was uh, Pavlovian. But Snuka was the one who broke the mold. Also, I remember Snuka versus Backlund keeping him in a side chin lock for about mm, four or five minutes so he could watch the, the fans fighting in the stands. <laughs> we had this one crazy show where it was like a hundred degrees outside and inside the Boston Garden where there was no air conditioning. I mean, it was hell and no one was in a good mood and we were having fights that night. You stopped going. You started going in 1980 when your dad started bringing you. You stopped going in 1984. What brought that on? They stopped taping there. And <laughs> I believe April, I think the Adonis Murdoch title win was the last tv taping they did in hamburg and that was in april of 1984 and if you remember all-star wrestling right around that time they started to show matches from maple leaf gardens okay that's right and i now understand it was because they had wwf wrestling on television in canada and canada has let's say had, I don't know if they still have them, probably not, these weird content rules where you couldn't just have a bunch of shows that came from America. You had to have Canadian content. So that's why they moved them to, I don't think it was Maple Leaf Gardens, uh, Brantford, Ontario, I think they moved them to. Okay, yeah. Or Hamilton, that was it, Hamilton, Ontario. And then that was the reason behind it. That way they could show WWF Wrestling in Canada. Mm Mm-hmm. Now I remember that. So did that totally suck for you? Now it's gone? Yeah. Yeah, it did. I mean, they ran shows after that. The WWF came back to the Hamburg Fieldhouse a few times a year after that, but not for TV. It was like you're the worst C show you could possibly imagine. Like the main event was the Moondogs against SD Jones and Ted Arcidi. I mean, it was crap. Oh my but god, this is like still, five moon dogs. Yeah. I mean, they ran a few years after that. Uh the last show I remember going to there was probably eighty-six. And a few names off the top of my head I remember it was only like a hour and a half or a two hour show. 
Velvet McIntyre was there, Ted Arcidi, the Moondogs, Pedro Morales, and, you know, just a bunch of the prelim guys that, you know, Davey O'Hannon, I think, might have been there. But, yeah, after they stopped doing the TV tapings in Hamburg, that that was the end of a chapter in my life. And, uh, you know, looking back, it, it's funny, too. I want to real quick. About four or five, I think it might have been around Christmas time, I was talking to my dad and I said, you know, I, in case I never get to tell you this, I thank you for taking me to the match. You have no idea what an impact that had on my life. Oh, yeah. Taking me to those wrestling matches from, you know, that four year period. And, you know, he knew that I got into it and everything. And uh, he appreciated that. I mean, he appreciated hearing that. And little did I know that. When I went with him that first show in 1980, it would turn out the way it did for me, you know, becoming the fan that I became and, you know, everything I did dealing with it from that point on. I mean, here we are literally 40 years later and we're still hooked on this stuff. Yep. So we are running out of time, but I do want to know. So what was the what was there a substitute for like the Hamburg tapings? Like, did you start going to wrestling in a different city or anything like that? Well, I occasionally I would go to Philly, you know, to the Spectrum. And in 1985, the NWA started running in the Philadelphia Civic Center. And I would go to the NWA shows in Philly. The NWA ran a few times in Allentown, too. I went to a few NWA shows in Allentown. There was nothing, you know, aside from the little spot shows that they would have here and there at the Reading High School or the Hamburg Fieldhouse. That, that that was pretty much it for me. Oh, wow. No, I, I get that. I mean, you know, and you're not 16 yet, so you can't drive yourself to the show. How far were you from Philadelphia? Um, about an hour, hour and 15 minutes in good traffic, about an uh, hour and 45 minutes if traffic was heavy. All right. I so. will end with this. I remember maybe five years ago, I am watching an episode of World Championship Wrestling, the the old show that was on TBS at 6.05, and Tony's just talking. This is before uh, WWE Network, and Tony Schiavone says, and I have a letter here from Randy Smith in Reading, Pennsylvania. (laughs) I don't remember the subject matter of that letter, but you must. Oh, I do, yeah. I wanted to know. I I wanted to know, hey, are you guys going to have the Great American Bash on videotape? When the NWA started airing in Philly in 85, that's all I cared about. I I cared about the NWA and, you know, the way they were plugging the Great American Bash and everything like that. And back in 85, it was only one night. It was one show, I believe, in Charlotte. Maybe in Charlotte. Yeah, where Flair came down in the helicopter and everything. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I wrote a letter to him. You know, I I didn't expect him to read it on the air, but I was looking for a reply. Are you guys going to put that out on videotape? And I think Tony Schiavone or David Crockett. Yes, Randy, we are. And they ended up putting out a a ringmaster's videotape of the Great American Bash that was only one hour. It sucked. But (laughs) I know I was I was very disappointed. I I, I never thought they marketed their videos quite well. But but man, you put it on a T for them. You just gave them like the hanging curveball like. Hey, are you guys putting on a, a, a video cassette? Well, in fact, Randy, we are. I did. I, I made it easy for David Crockett, believe it or not. 
<laughs> Randy, thank you very much for reappearing on Stick to Wrestling. It is always a pleasure. Thank you again, and you will be back. All right. You have a good night, John. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. And I want to thank everyone for listening. I am John McAdam. You can follow me on Twitter. Just search for John McAdam and follow the guys who are fighting with chairs. I don't always stick to wrestling there. I want to thank our producer, Lou Kippelman, Lightning Lou. And thank you again for listening. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. 